Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Anyway, so, and then Ryan, tell us a little bit uh, of your journey from when I first met you. You went uh, you did a four-year degree, and then tell describe what you your journey and what you're doing now. Sure. So, <clears throat> um, not unlike a, several other of Paul's students, um, I finished up, and then I um, went to Lincoln Christian Seminary over in Lincoln, Illinois. Um, at uh, at which point I, I did a Master of Divinity degree over the course of about three years. Um, and then I uh, went to uh, study for my Ph.D. at Marquette University uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, where I have been uh, ever since. So um, I'm no longer in Milwaukee. Um, my family and I now live in Minneapolis. My wife works for the University of Minnesota, and I. Um, feebly try to write my dissertation um, in between diaper changes uh, with my daughter, who's now two. So um, my, my days of sitting in the library all day are, are over, but um, I still try to squeeze some thinking in uh, when I can. <laughs> and Ryan is uh, uh, some way the two brightest people that uh, perhaps I've ever known managed to marry each other. Uh, and so Ryan and Katie would, uh, and she no longer goes by Katie, but Kate, uh, as she's made her, I assume she's running a, some university up there by now. Uh, uh the, the university of Minnesota. Yeah. That, uh, and she would certainly be, I assume she'll be president of something someday, but, uh, they haven't made her president yet. Not, not yet. Although the the current university president is is uh, retiring at the end of the year, so who knows? There it may be that. So yeah, just uh, uh, it was uh, it was such pleasure to have them, and now they've got uh, they've brought another life into the world that that just seems uh, <laughs> Amelia, right? That uh, Amelia. Amelia. Yeah. Okay. But uh, t- describe a little bit. Uh, you're doing this huge work. And, and uh, you've described it to me several times, and, and being slow-minded, uh, I don't know that I could uh, uh, repeat it, but describe the, the uh, research that you're doing. Yeah, sure. So when I was at Lincoln, um, I had the, the good fortune of, of having a professor and a few other interested uh, seminarians um, take a year, a full year, and work through um, Bernard Lonergan's sort of masterpiece of, of Christian philosophy called Insight. Um, and then the, the, in, over the summer, I read his method in theology. I don't think I really understood more than about 10% of either one of them, but I was, um, I sort of had caught the, the Lonergan bug. Um, and so I, I worked a little bit of, very, very little bit of Lonergan into my, my master's thesis. And then um, a major part of the motivation in going to Marquette was that uh, Father Robert Doran, who's, uh, for my money, the, the premier Lonergan scholar in the world, um, a, a Jesuit priest, 
the general editor of the collected works of Bernard Lonergan. He, he was at Marquette and is at Marquette. And um, so I really wanted to study with him. And um, uh, thankfully, I, I was given that opportunity. And so I went to go um, and studied Lonergan most of the time I was there. Uh, I was Father Doran's TA. Um, I was the president of the Lonergan Society and ran an annual graduate student conference uh, organized around Lonergan's thought and uh, was something of a Lonergan apologist on campus. Uh, I, I even taught a, an a upper division undergraduate course on Lonergan at Marquette. So um, Lonergan, for, for those of you, which is everybody who does, doesn't know, um, was this sort of singular genius polymath um, a Canadian Jesuit, uh, born in the, the very beginning of the 20th century. Um, he joined the Jesuits as a young man and was uh, trained in, in what we now call uh, sort of the manual tradition, uh, which, which was essentially uh, an, an approach to basic theology and basic philosophy um, organized around... Um, certain interpretations of scholasticism, but kind of stripped of um, scholastic decadence and boiled down to uh, assertions and theses. Um, and he found all of this sort of greatly dissatisfying. He, he thought the, the philosophy of mind, the philosophy of knowledge, the understanding of understanding that was embedded within this, this particular tradition um, simply had nothing to do with the way he thought. Um, and so while he was at, at, uh, at Heathrop studying for his undergraduate degree, he, uh, he spent his time reading Augustine and, and John Henry Newman and, and others. And he, as he says in an interview, uh, I found my salvation there. And so uh, he, he stood out from the crowd among the Jesuits of his generation as a, a kind of singular talent. And so was shipped off to Rome um, to study for a, a doctorate in theology, which was a kind of last minute change of, of plan. He was initially supposed to study for a, a doctorate in philosophy. Um, but, but they, uh, his, his provincial changed his mind at the last minute and uh, he went to study theology there instead and the way the, the Roman system worked at the time was you basically had two years to pick a project, uh, execute that project, and then uh, re return to your institution. And so when Lonergan showed up to Rome, he really had no project because uh, he, he had, in, had intended and anticipated to study philosophy. And so his, uh, his director... Uh, recommended to him that he take up the problem of operative grace in the writings of Thomas Aquinas. It was this pesky problem in the history of Thomist interpretation that had never really been given a satisfactory treatment. It was very bogged down in the polemics of Jesuit and Dominican arguments in the 16th century, um, obviously well after Thomas's time. And so, uh, Without having any other ideas of what he of what he would do, Lonergan took up this project um, and wrote what is still probably the definitive treatment of Aquinas's account of grace and freedom, 
Um, but he had the misfortune of writing it during a, the, the rise of fascism in Italy. And so um, prior to defending his thesis, he, as a Canadian uh, and, and thereby a subject of the Queen, uh, had to leave Italy after Italy and, and England had declared war on each other. And so for six years, he had completed his, his dissertation and was teaching at a very small seminary in Canada, but had not yet received his, his doctorate. Uh, and in fact, uh, had to defend his doctorate eventually at the end of the war by proxy uh, with the faculty that he was already on there in Canada. So it's this very kind of bizarre and, and uh, winding road that, that um, brought him finally to the point where he was standing on his own two feet and, and engaged in his own projects. And so from this rather Thomist background, um, both Aquinas' account of grace and then later Thomas's account of, of cognition, of the inner word and of the act of understanding. Um, Lonergan spent um, much of the late 40s and early 50s writing what became uh, Insight, this giant 800-page treatment of, of human cognition and, and of the act of understanding in particular. Um, by the time he had finished writing Insight, he had been shipped back to Rome as a faculty member at the Gregorian, uh, where he had done his, his doctorate. Um, and he stayed there until 1965, when health problems brought him back to Canada. And uh, apart from a, a brief sojourn at Harvard, he, he spent the, the rest of his life there in Canada, at, mainly at Regis College uh, at the University of Toronto. And in the early 70s, he, he finally put out... Uh, Method in Theology, which is, at least among theologians, the book he's most famous for, um, that almost none of them understand. Um, but at any rate, the, 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 the sweep of Lonergan's career um, had him involved in philosophy, theological methodology, Trinitarian theology, Christology, grace theology, uh, some, uh, even a little bit of sacramental theology in, in between. Book ended... Um, by a overwhelming technical interest in macroeconomics. Um, gro- growing up in North America in the 30s, um, he was well acquainted with the effects of the Great Depression. Um, and uh, in the aftermath of, of uh, that experience, he, he really gave himself over to the study of economics as a young man. Um, and wrote uh, an incomplete manuscript of a theory of macroeconomic uh, dynamics um, that he returned to as a as an older man, uh, sort of the last the last project he took up um, before the end of his life. When he took it up again, the story goes uh, he was debating whether or not he was going to return to Christology or return to economics. And uh, the, the, who knows if this is true or not, but he, he has this conversation with, with Gustavo Gutierrez, the founder of Latin American liberation theology. Um, and Gustavo says to Bernard, um, the problem with liberation theologians is that they don't know anything about economics. Lonergan thought, well, I know a lot about economics. Um, this might be my way of contributing to the preferential option for the poor, 
uh, my own way of contributing to the, the, the common good. And so he returned to economics out of a conviction that the, the, the problem with economic um, distribution and with um, material suffering and, and unjust social structures owed partially but not entirely to greed. That there was, be, beyond the problem of greed, there was the problem of ignorance. That, that uh, human society and human goods of order simply had, had not understood adequately as yet um, a, a sort of the, the pure cycles of economic flows. And so he was really calling for a maturation of macroeconomics itself um, beyond uh, just the old political economy and beyond uh, Marxist analysis and, and really even beyond Keynesian business cycle analysis. He was gesturing towards something yet further. Um, he didn't complete that manuscript. He died before he was able to complete it, but um, both the earlier and the later works are now published in the collected works. But that big biographical story, simply to say, uh, what, what Lonergan offers somebody, someone like me is um, encyclopedic interest with uh, sh- near omnicompetence in, in all of these different areas. And so almost regardless of the question at hand or the, or the, the particular nest of issues that I was trying to think through as a student, um, Lonergan seemed to have asked my questions before me and uh, asked them better uh, and had gone a long way toward answering them. And so I just find my, found myself going back to him over and over and over again uh, every time a problem would arise or, a, or a, a question would emerge for me. And so uh, in, in the course of my time at Marquette, I, I got very invested in theological method and in Trinitarian theology. And so um, when I was pre- preparing for my comprehensive exams several years ago now, I, I kind of made that the, the centerpiece of my exam and um, tried, and, and I've been trying ever since to spin out a dissertation from it. And so the, the, the dissertation itself is an attempt to, um, to clarify what I think is, a, is an ambiguity embedded in Trinitarian theology as it's been practiced in the last half century. Uh, and to make a kind of, of apology, a kind of apologia for uh, what used to be called before the Second Vatican Council speculative theology. Um, that, that in the last 50 years, there's been a, a um, sort of migration toward practicality, which on the whole, I think is very good and very positive. Um, but in Trinitarian theology, many theologians across the board felt that practical and continue to feel that practicality is the sort of criterion by which their own uh, work ought to be measured. And so you can go uh, to a library and look at titles that have come out in the last 20 years, and, and they're almost all blank and the Trinity. And the blank is always some mundane matter, whether that's ecology or uh, interreligious dialogue or uh, marriage, you know, all, all these things which are important in and of themselves, but don't obviously have anything to do with the doctrine of the Trinity. And so uh, 
what, what, what my work is trying to show is the utility and uh, stability of purely speculative theology, uh, even after the critique of metaphysics, after the critique of ontotheology, after the critique of theory, um, that there, there are residues of this, uh, this mentality that still persist and that I want to, to encourage uh, and, and uh, help develop. Because I, I, I take quite seriously all the critiques uh, and I take quite seriously the respect in which the, the cultural situation, the cultural matrix, the sort of uh, spirit of the age, um, makes it such that a, a simple repristination is neither desirable nor possible. Uh, so it's not a matter of simply going back and, and practicing theology in the 21st century uh, in exactly the same way as it was practiced in the 13th, but trying to think through horizontally and vertically how one would do for one's own time what what Aquinas did for his own. And that was one of Lonergan's sort of organizing questions. Um, and so my, my own little very, very small sliver of that, of that pie is to try to rethink and reimagine and then articulate what speculative theology would mean in a post-classicist, post-hegemonic culture. Um, and then try to apply that those methodological um, principles, and they're not really principles; they're just they're conclusions. Those methodological conclusions to um, different different ways, different an, different analogies for the Trinitarian processions that um, are are seemingly incompatible, but I'm I'm calling for a more um, constructive and collaborative pluralism even in speculative theology. So that's, that's probably a, a way too long answer to a very simple question, but uh, there we go. Well, uh, and that was what, you know, in, in our discussion, you've been continually trying to explain to me the significance of Lonergan, and that's what I wanted to, that, uh, that obviously my own education is remiss because uh, that in some way we've missed that. I guess that, 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 uh, also, then, uh, along the way that um, you're engaging uh, Balthazar, who else would be? Uh, are you engaging in your in your uh, research? Um, I, I've I've done them. Uh, so 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 one of the the sort of central issues is uh, what, mark, what would mark speculative theology today as being different from speculative theology in the past. And, and my central claim, and it's one I'm, I'm borrowing directly from Lonergan, is that uh, there's a shift in the modern period, uh, and, and really just since the late 19th century, in uh, the notion of culture. That, that previously culture was understood normatively and universally. It's the sort of, it's the social manifestation of the immutability of the human soul. Uh, it's, it's what happens when, when uh, the human spirit is, is uh, socially constructed. And so um, if you wanted to be cultured, that, that could be measured by the standards of Greek paideia, by the standards of German Bildung, um, by formation and cultivation, the way that you resembled um, 
certain, your certain masters. Uh, it meant uh, the mastery of Latin and Greek. It meant the study of the ancient world. Um, and the, the, that, that road, that path to culture was the same, whether you were in central Missouri or Minnesota or China or Nigeria. And that notion of culture, of course, underrides um, a lot of really awful developments in uh, the colonial period and in uh, the, the manifold horrors of the 20th century. And so um, what, what sometimes gets called in, in hermeneutical literature uh, historical consciousness, what um, Becker and Richardson will call historical mindedness, what Lonergan and Christopher Dawson will call the empirical or the anthropological or the historical notion of culture. All these sort of big terms are, are uh, indicators of a, of a shift from the, a normative definition of culture, which is abstract and universal, to a concrete notion of culture that is empirical and therefore verifiable in the actual data of human living. But one of the entailments of that is that in every concrete place in which there are discrete sets of meanings and discrete sets of values that are organizing the way particular people live their lives, there are distinct cultures. And so there isn't one normative cultural singularity against which all other forms of human cooperation are measured. That uh, the, norm, the normative structure of culture is, is not universal and abstract, but is imminent, it is concrete, and it is generated by the actual specific uh, cultural forms that really exist. And there are several thinkers, and I've been naming them in this, this exposition, who are all kind of stumbling upon this insight from different directions. Uh, so Christopher Dawson is one. Uh, in his own way, Freud is another. Um, you know, Freud's exploration of culture in um, in Moses and monotheism, in, in um, Totem and Taboo, you know, all these, the, these works that he has that uh, are, are trying to work out psychoanalytically the, the origin and development of culture, they have, they, they have, there's, there's obviously very different um, emphases in Freud's account than in, than in the anthropologist account or in the hermeneutic, the hermeneutic account uh, most importantly is Freud's uh, refusal of the distinction between culture and civilization. Uh, that, that for Freud, uh, the social and the cultural are, are the same thing. This is one of, the, one of Paul Ricoeur's big points in his, his uh, interpretation of Freud on, on these matters. But, but all of them in their own way are, are, are highlighting the respect in which, that, which culture is a concrete phenomenon that has to be studied concretely and when you when you engage in the work of that study, what you find is plurality. And so any any modality of inquiry that would seek to uh, either understand cultures in themselves or to mediate meanings to those cultures has to confront that basic fact of plurality, not as a problem to be solved, but as the actual context of thinking. Uh -huh. And in theoretical forms of inquiry, like 
speculative theology, metaphysics, even mathematics and, and logic, um, there's a presumption that once you are doing theory, you are beyond the practicalities and parochialities of culture, that you're, you're engaged in something pure and something kind of floating above the, the material and formal context of, of people and, and living. And, and so one of my central claims in the dissertation is that, um, that theory, no less than common sense, is uh, embedded in and circumscribed by um, the actual empirical context of, of the cultures that theoreticians come from. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, this, the, the result of this is not a radical form of relativism, but simply a, a recognition that whatever access one has to something like universality, um, it's only in and through the, the um, cultural situations in which their meanings and values are, are organized and out of which they arise. And so um, I think you can talk about theory as being universal, but not, but not in the way we often mean universal. It has it has universal universality, uh, as Piaget might say, through its through its uh, mobility. That it ha- it it can move around. You can, you can use the same structure of explanation in a variety of contexts, and so universality is demonstrated not by its disconnection from the concrete, um, but by the the range of it, of its explanatory applicability and has, so it has mobility of explanation uh-huh. and so theology no less so than mathematics or or uh, any other theoretical discipline only has universality in as much as it has mobility of explanation so um so that's that's that, that's that's the maybe the more controversial claim that that i'm i'm making uh-huh. is that even Pure ideas like God um, have contexts of inquiry, right? That when people ask the question of God, they ask it as someone and from somewhere and at some time. And while those realities don't overdetermine the inquiry, they do set constraints on it. Um, And those constraints are not a thing to be overcome. They're just part of what it means to be a finite being, a finite intellectual creature asking the question of the infinite. Um, and so try, trying to, to work all that out is, is um, the suicidal task that I've set for myself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll be at that a while. Um, a, a couple of questions, that may, maybe just a, pra- a practical point. That you've also, I don't know in the dissertation, but I know otherwise you've dealt with Rene Girard. And, and it would seem like that Girard, in fact, uh, in, in a sense, stands over and against the, the very thing that you're describing, in that he's going to arrive at a kind of singular understanding of here's, uh, uh, and I, I have the same question about Freud. In other words, aren't they, in fact, giving us a kind of singular 
uh, evolution, metamorphosis, uh, that behind which all uh, cultural understanding, uh, you know, is going, it can be reduced against that. Sure. So, um, at, at one level, yes. But the, but the respect in which they're arguing it, 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 it has much more to do with what I was just saying about mobility. That, um, that, that what, well, for both Freud and Girard, the presumption is not that you could um, conceive of this theory um, and then just sort of show independently how different cultures uh, conform to it, but rather that the theory is derived from an actual analysis of really existing texts and um, artifacts of cultural construction. And so while, the, while, the, while for both Girard and Freud, the conclusions, the sort of theoretical apparatus that they are, I mean, and of course, Freud has like three different theories of culture, um, yeah, they have universality of application, um, but the claim in each case is that they are um, they're derived from an actual analysis of culture in the concrete. Um, however, I think for for all of these approaches, um, psychoanalytic approaches, anthropological approaches, um, it's very very difficult to think about cultural pluralism as uh, something other than a problem to be solved. And so there's a kind of residual classicism that gets imported even into theories of culture that are expressly designed as a, as a stark alternative to that kind of classicist thinking. Um, there's, a, there's always a tendency to sort of revert back to a normative theory of culture. Um, you know, this is, this is one of the things Bruno Latour points out about uh, ethnographers is that um, the one thing, the one culture they never study is their own, uh, that they don't want an anthropology of the modern world uh, because that would reduce uh, all of the pretensions of the modern world down to um, a, a yet another parochial context. And so when they want to study culture in the concrete, they go off to the tropics. But of course, the culture they come from is no more or no less a culture than any culture they would go to study. Um, but even so, there is that that um, even unthematized sense that the the culture that you're from is somehow the culture that really counts, and the culture against which you might make normative judgments about any other one. And so, it's 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 very difficult to maintain. Uh, that insight. I mean, it, it, historically, at least in the West, it really has its origins in the late 19th century German historical school. But you don't have to read very far into the textbook of the 20th century to see how stubbornly cultural normativity exits the continental scene, right? The, you, have, you have catastrophic industrial-scale violence all predicated on the idea that one culture is normative and thereby superior to any other that it might encounter. And so simply having this insight in a classroom or having this insight uh, at an academic level is important, but it's, it's, it's really not enough um, to stem the, the momentum that, uh, that classicism has behind it. 
You made the, the distinction in, uh, uh, the, between civilization and uh, the and society and Freud, uh, and, and I assume what you're describing is that Freud, in some way, is picturing through science and through the work of civilization that he's broken free, or and then of course that's always the question in Freud uh, whether whether science, as he's conceiving it. Is in some way, you know, floats above the the social. Is that the point with uh, civilization and society? Uh, I mean, he he thinks of, um, and I, I I should preface all this by saying I'm in, I'm entirely dependent on Paul Ricoeur for this point. Um, I, I I I don't know that I could go and easily verify this independently of Ricoeur's analysis, but. For for recurs Freud at least uh, the transformation of nature, which is which is what Freud really means by civilization, right? T- taking a a forest and turning it into a city, um, that 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 represents psychoanalytically the same um, competition of drives, the same uh, relations of origin, the same. Um, battle of libidinal impulses that are at work in the construction of a self. Um, and so there's not for Freud a, a psychoanalytic difference. There's not a difference in the psyche between the construction of culture and the construction of uh, what we might call civilization or, or the social order. And so um, because his analysis of culture is through the, the, through psychoanalytic theory, that means that uh, he's not going to make a, a, a distinction because the psychoanalytic structures and operations and interactions are the same, whether the, the thing being transformed is, is nature or, or, uh, or the self. So that, uh, I mean, what, what you get uh, is in Freud is the question that arises uh, that I mean that's the thing with the death drive, the death instinct. Uh, that ultimately, uh, the the thing that has the sickness that he's giving us a diagnosis of, uh, where we all have the same sickness, and it's not clear there's any cure. That we're all plagued by uh, the the uh, thanatos, you know. And, and so when he talks about civilization uh, and when, he, when he's doing his own science, it's, in other words, there's that tension in Freud, whether he's picturing this thing as, as in some way that, in other words, obviously he, he, his own work in some way uh, rises above that, or does it not? I, you know, that's the question, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, in both instances, civilization and culture, and culture in particular represents um, this sort of bargain that you make um, where you are going to sacrifice the free flows of, of your desire, that, that you're, go- you're going to um, close off libidinal possibility. Um, you're going to make sacrifices for... Uh, the cultic order. Now, as a result, you're gonna you're you're gonna get gifts along with that. You're gonna have um, social stability and uh, 
recurring material goods. Um, so it's not just uh, you know, it's not just a sacrifice. But the first sacrifice, of course, is the is the prohibition of murder. You know, that that in order to be in a culture, you first give up your desire to kill, or or at the very least, you give up your um, willingness to enact that desire. And so you you need compensation for this and for many other sacrifices that you make. And so you know the the role of the illusion when he's you know when he gets to talking about religion and he gets talking about uh, myth and and illusion, the role of illusion is to, in a sense, compensate you for these sacrifices that you make uh, in order to live with other people. Now, whether that analysis. Um, in Freud's own conception, floats free of the psychoanalytic drives that he is claiming are responsible for the, the generation of culture is, as, as you say, a sort of tricky question. I mean, Recur's point seems to be that the significance of the psychoanalytic approach to culture um, is not the, the, the acuity of its analysis, but that it represents a change in culture in as much as it's attempting to interpret culture. That, that insofar as, as, psychoana- as psychoanalysis represents a change in our cultural situation marked by the drive to understand and interpret our own cultural embeddedness, it's indicative of a change in our own cultural situation, our own cultural moment. So, so Freud's account of culture, yeah, it's like, it's not scientific, right? It's not, it's not empirical in the sense that he didn't, he didn't go out and do exhaustive studies on uh, the, the concrete cultural experiences of different people and then try to triangulate his analysis, right? He's, he's mainly working from texts that he's already familiar with that are, in, in many cases, part of his own Jewish culture. Um, and he's trying to understand them using theories that he, he created uh, independent of an analysis of, of those texts. So, yeah, they're, they're probably not going to be tremendously helpful for doing ethnography. However, they, they may be significant in as much as they, they mark a shift toward explicit cultural self-understanding, at least in the West, that... Mm-hmm that no longer is culture going to be an unthematized, unobjectified sort of thing running in the background, but is going to be an explicit uh, object of interpretive investigation. And uh, so if, if, if nothing else, I think Freud's account of culture is, is important for that reason. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.